This week, we've got English court rulings on mandatory mediation and other English landmark decisions. We've got AI regulation coming from the U.S. federal courts. We've even got a special guest joining us in the digital studio. All this and more on this week's episode of Disputes Digest by Tales of the Tribunal. But before we get into this week's episode, we'd really appreciate it if you'd like the show on LinkedIn, including the post sharing this episode. And if you really like the show, consider leaving us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. And if you're wanting to go above and beyond, share the show with a friend or colleague. It really helps others find the show. Now, let's jump into it. For the news, we'll start the week, and in the week for that matter, in the United Kingdom, where there is a legal tussle resembling that of David and Goliath involving a story which begins with a Mr. Churchill who bought property in 2015 but found himself battling against the encroachment of Japanese knotweed from adjoining land owned by the Matrix Tidalville County Borough Council. The plot thickened in 2020 when Mr. Churchill, distressed by the damage and devaluation caused by the invasive plant, decided to skip the council's complaint procedure and head straight to court. So maybe you see where I'm going with this. The council, in response, sought to stay on proceedings, arguing that Churchill should have first used its internal mechanisms for dispute resolution. Enter the Deputy District Judge Kimpton Rees, who initially sided with the council, citing a precedent set in Hasley v. Milton Keynes General NH Trust back in 2004. This ruling underscored that forcing unwilling parties into mediation was a strict no-go, as it hindered the right to court access. However, the plot takes a twist as the Court of Appeal, led by a tribunal of legal luminaries, Baroness Carr, Sir Geoffrey Voss, and Lord Justice Burse, partially allowed Churchill's appeal. The Court of Appeal, in a decision delivered by the Master of the Rolls, essentially rewrote the script. They clarified that the cited passages from Hasley were not binding in this scenario. The court could indeed order parties to engage in alternative dispute resolution, provided that it didn't trample on the essence of the claimant's right to a judicial hearing, and it was a proportionate achieving and a fair, swift, and cost-effective settlement. However, the court refrained from laying down the hard and fast rules for when to order such alternative dispute resolution mechanisms leaving it to the specifics of each individual case in a fact-intensive analysis. In Churchill's case, while an immediate stay of proceedings was denied, the court suggested that the parties consider a temporary stay for mediation or similar non-court adjudication. This ruling, in essence, balances the scales between rigid adherence of legal process and practical need for the efficient dispute resolution reshaping the landscape of civil litigation. From there, let's hop across the pond to the United States, where there's an interesting proposal that's recently come out of the Federal Fifth Judicial Circuit in the U.S. In a proposed amendment posted earlier in the week, a new rule is proposed, and it reads as follows. Certificate of Compliance, see Form 6 in the Appendix of Forms to the Federal Rule of Procedure. Additionally, counsel and unrepresented filers must further certify that no generative artificial intelligence program was used in drafting the document presented for filing, or to the extent such program was used, all generative text, including citations and legal analysis, has been reviewed for accuracy and approved by a human. A material misrepresentation in the certificate of compliance may result in striking the document and sanctions against the person signing the document. 
This proposed rule also comes with a, quote, certificate of compliance, end quote, to be attached in all forthcoming federal filing in the circuit. Such an affirmative statement is certainly a de declaration in the usage of AI, but perhaps unintentionally raises all manner of additional questions. For example, what is the scope of the word, quote, used in this context? What if generative AI was used to review documents or for such legal research, but not in the drafting of the actual submissions before the court? How is the application of this rule distinguished from attorney's general rules of ethics and competency when making any sort of submission to the court? Could this set a precedent of the court telling attorneys what technologies they can and cannot use in representing their clients? What about the free speech implications? What is the appropriate remedy if AI is indeed used, but the pleading is otherwise perfectly acceptable by the court, but AI usage was not disclosed? There are many thoughts that come to mind as this greater conversation unfolds about the usage of AI in the practice of law. The court is soliciting comments on this proposed rule change through January 4th, 2024. And we'd love to know your thoughts on this topic too. So shoot us an email or leave us a comment on this story. Finally, to end our coverage for the week, let's actually head not to the UK, but over to the Middle East, where the, there is a landmark case called Abu Dhabi Global Markets ADGM's Court of Appeal, where the highest judicial body in ADGM established a precedent in AC Network Holding Limited versus Polymath Eskar SPV1. This is a case out of the United Arab Emirates, UAE. This ruling confirmed the direct enforceability of English common law and its precedents within ADGM, a financial free trade zone in the UAE. This decision marks the first detailed clarification of how the incorporation of English common law into ADGM's legal system operates in practice. The case at hand involved a dispute within a Middle Eastern car rental business, Eckar Holding Limited, a group of majority shareholders attempted to force the sale of the company to a third party, Lux to Invico for a nominal value, invoking a drag-along clause in the shareholders' agreement. The minority shareholders contested this, citing a breach of contract and unlawful means conspiracy due to the beneficial ownership of Lux being similar to one of the major shareholders. The ADGM court of first instance initially sided with the minority shareholders finding the sale of breach of contract. However, it ruled that there was no unlawful conspiracy, relying on previous English law precedent in Merit's Investments NV versus ACP Limited, rather than the most recent precedents, Racing Partnership v. Drones Brothers Limited. The Court of Appeals overturned this decision, emphasizing the direct applicability and binding nature of English common law doctrine of precedents in ADGM. They held that the most recent English court judgment on unlawful conspiracy, the racing case, should be followed. This judgment underscores the ADGM's commitment to English law and setting it apart from Dubai's International Financial Center hybrid legal regime. For more information, we'll include the full story in the show notes. And that's where we'll end the news coverage for today. Why? Because we have a very special guest in the studio with us today, a throwback to season one, and one of our very first guests on Tales of the Tribunal, Sherlyn Tung. We caught up with her a few weeks ago during our time in Hong Kong. So let's jump into that conversation, and I'll be back briefly to close up the show. Hello there, and welcome to uh, Disputes Digest in the after segment to the news. Thank you for staying around. With us today, we have a familiar and friend of the show um, back in season one. 
Miss Sherlyn Tung. Sherlyn, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. You forgot to add, and she looks even younger six years later. That's right. I mean, in fact, it's a modern marvel. You know, it, uh, I'm not even sure how this is happening right now, but yes, and somehow younger than when you first appeared on the show. Absolutely, and they actually say that the weather helps the skin, so maybe, Chris, you should come back more often. I agree. I like being in Hong Kong. It's always good and a pleasure to be back here. And so I think... Um, I think one of the things that we have to talk about, since it's been a bit since you've been on the show, is you used to be at a different place. We're now in another place you are. You've moved up in the world. And we're in that place that you moved up to here at Withers Studios. We'll call it unofficially. Um, tell us about what you've been up to and uh, what you're doing now. Okay, a lot has happened in the last few years since I've last been on. But no, you're right. I'm now here with Withers Worldwide. We are an international law firm and I specialize in... We're basically a full-service law firm, but what, what I've been asked to be to be brought on here is basically to establish the international arbitration team in the APAC region. We've got a very strong team already in London with Hussein Hayeri, who leads and is co-head of our international arbitration practice. He's also one of the leading, um, I would, I'm, I'm biased, but you can ask anybody else. He is one of our leading uh, practitioners in the world on investment arbitration and public international law. We've got the beautiful and genius Emma Lindsay, who is based in New York, and she is the head of the New York uh, International Arbitration Practice, sorry, not New York, head of the U.S. International Arbitration Practice, and she also focuses on public international law. One thing that I really want to say that I appreciate about Withers is um, we really do take into consideration not just billables and how much money is brought in, we really want to give back to the community. And in earlier this year, Emma was designated and appointed the head of Withers Pro Bono. Mm-hmm. Um, or section so she's basically the chair and so she dedicates part of her time to that and another thing I know that we might get into later is Withers is great in that we're very big on diversity mm. I think we're one of the few international firms where we either are at a 50-50 for female to male partners mm. at one time we were I think we were even higher and I just think in in the last two years we've extens- expanded so significantly we're probably around 50-50 maybe slightly lower but still right around the 50-50 mark well and let's uh, let's actually stay right there um do you think that that's part of the uh, the firm culture, or is that has that been intentional, or exactly how does um you know you see your peer law firms maybe haven't had such success? I mean, how does Withers manage to have that? So one aspect is Withers is known also for private, and so those lawyers, to my understanding, because it's not my practice areas, those are historically there's a lot of females, but. What I can say from personal experience is when I was interviewed by my CEO, Peter Wood, um, and he's based in London, we were having a chat and um, I asked him because I looked at the uh, his team at the time and they were basically 70% female, 30% male, and Peter was just very blunt, honest with me. He said, I don't actually look at sex or whatever for um, a person's capabilities. I look at what you can do and it just happens to be that in my 25 plus year career my female associates now female partners have been the most successful and we reward them Mm. for the success we reward them for the hard work and i think that's a great thing because our lit arb team uh even in hong kong we are 50 50 percent so worldwide it's really strong to know and i think that um you know, that that's a standard and a benchmark that I think a lot of firms are uh, aiming for, even corporate teams. So um, good on Withers for, for managing to do that. Yeah, I am very proud of firm for, I mean, many things, but in particular the diversity. They're also really key on mental well-being. 
and we've got weekly sessions. I'm a little bit jealous because I think the Singapore office has a little bit more space. They now get to do their like Pilates classes. Mm. But with us here in Hong Kong, we've got our own gym and oh. we have yoga sessions. Um, our former managing partner actually funded it herself and it's a full on gym. We've got all of the necessary equipment and it basically keeps us sane. I think we do. It's this, it's this contraption that I don't know how to use, but like my trainer. We've got everything. Okay, next time I come back, I'm going to use the squat rack uh, here at Withers. Yeah. And we've also got like the screens inside, so we can also do yoga classes, body pump, whatever you want to put on. It's really nice. That is. That's really that's really cool. Um, you know, moving away from the gym-based things that Withers has to offer, um, what you know, now that you're here at Withers and you talked a little bit about what your mandate is here, what you're trying to achieve, um, talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, you know, um, from your practice, uh, what, what, what have you seen in terms of uh, commercial arbitration developments or things that you might want to share with, uh, with the audience? We have gotten quite busy in the last, I would say, six months. I'm not going to lie. I think for 2022, it was a bit slow. Mm. And that, although interestingly enough, once COVID set was uh, set in, we were busy the first one or two years. And I think at that point, as it continued to go on, the clients started to get worried because they weren't too sure how much longer this pandemic was going to be right. in place. So then you started to see a slowness in around 2022. Nobody wanted to pull the trigger. Mm. Nobody wanted to do that, commence the arbitration. Everyone wanted to settle. Everyone would get a legal, legal assessment and it didn't matter how, how strong their case was. They were like, oh, okay, so this will help us settle which is great. We always want to see our clients happy and we want them to settle. But earlier this year, we've seen a sharp spike in um, arbitrations, litigations, injunctions, etc. And and it's it's a welcome, I guess, on both aspects because it allows my clients to be a lot more aggressive and get what they ultimately want rather than kind of settling for something that makes everybody happy. Uh, in particular with Hong Kong, what we've seen more of these days are disputes involving mainland Chinese parties because of the benefits of being here in Hong Kong. You started an arbitration seated in Hong Kong. You've got this mutual arrangement where um, you get the mutual arrangement in support of arbitration seated in Hong Kong for foreign basically PRC injunctions. Right. So clients can come in commence the arbitration and then commence at the same time in China a request to freeze assets, for example, or to uh, preserve conduct, etc. And we've had, I think, just our 100th case, the HKIC just reported it. And out of the 100 cases that were filed in mainland China through this mutual arrangement, my understanding is over 90% have been granted. And the remaining, whatever, eight or whatever percent that weren't granted, they weren't denied. You know, it was just most likely the parties at that point settled and therefore were withdrawn. So it, it is quite a strong tool for clients to use in particular. And it's only it's unique to Hong Kong. Well, that's right. And I mean, and I think, you know, anyone following sort of commercial activity across borders would recognize that. You know, I think business environments have changed the world over, but it seems like there is still a good amount of activity in Hong Kong in the APAC region. Um, and maybe it's just different than what it looked like a few years ago, but it's not maybe necessarily less. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's less. I wouldn't think it's more publicized now. Mm. Um, so, for example, the, uh, the mainland Chinese government is undergoing a revision of their arbitration law, right. and they're just making it more uniform to other jurisdictions, other pro-arbitration jurisdictions. There's nothing really in there that's going to jump out at you as a red flag. It's basically them harmonizing to show the world that, you know, we are not necessarily a dangerous seat of arbitration. Um, also, we've started to see in the last five to ten years, more more uh, awards are being enforced. Right. right. They're not being rejected. And let's just be real. Yes, a couple have been set aside. I think most notably 
um, unfortunately, the Singapore Arbitration Center. Mm -hmm. They had the one where it was a um, basically expedited procedure. Yes. Arbitration clause provided for three, but because the SIC rules say it's one, they submitted to one, and the guy, uh, the arbitrator rendered the award. The, sh the court, the Chinese court set it aside, but because it was a breach of party autonomy, right? right? It had nothing to do, to my understanding, with, you know, one part, the party losing party being in China. And so you're starting to see more and more of these arbitral awards enforced. International arbitration awards in China, if the lower court takes a decision to not enforce it or to try to set it aside, they're not allowed to issue that decision. It's got to go all the way up to the People's Court, uh, Supreme Court in Beijing. They take a look at the case and they decide whether or not it can be upheld as being set aside or they basically change it and say, nope, this is going to be enforced. So we see a lot more positive activity in this area. So it's reason for confidence for international parties to know that uh, if they get an award, even from a foreign seated tribunal, that generally they'll be upheld unless there's some sort of, you know, really... Uh, Procedural defect. Procedural defect is what we like to call it, but yes. Okay. Well, no, that, that's great. I mean, that, that's good to hear. And it sounds like uh, it sounds like you guys are busy and doing good stuff. Um, one of the things that would be remiss um, if we didn't talk about in our time together, Sherlyn, would be that you've also been busy with um, a little organization called the Vis East. That is a, my new baby, I think. Um, so as you know, Chris, during our last conversation on this this wonderful uh, po podcast. Yes, yes, that's correct. I'm also of an age where we didn't have this when I was growing up. <laughs> but at that time, it was the MAA that was my baby. And now the MAA has passed on gracefully to wonderful a new wonderful board. Now Louise Barrington has taken me under her, her wing, and I'm now the deputy director of the Vis East hmm. competition. So basically, we run the Vis East and work together with the Vienna directors, since, you know, it's the same problem. Different roles, different competitions, but we are sisters to that competition, and it's great. We had our 20th anniversary this year. We had over uh, initially over 125 teams registered. Wow. Unfortunately, only 112 teams submitted memos okay. for the claimants, and ultimately only 111 teams made it to Hong Kong. But to be the first in-person Vis East since 2019, we were shocked because, quite honestly, we thought we would get 80. Mm. And so we had 111. And this year, I know registration is already well past 100 again. Wow. Those are great indicators. And I think, um, you know, Hong Kong is back is kind of the mantra that we heard throughout Hong Kong Arbitration Week. Um, and it sounds like that rings true for the Vis East as well. Absolutely. And I again, I think we're going to have to implement a cutoff soon because this... Unfortunately, we're not as big as Vienna, yeah. so we can't hold more than a certain amount. We keep getting kicked out of every location we were at previously. Mm. Yeah, I mean, logistical challenges are our mainstay <laughs> of, of uh, I think, uh, both competitions. Um, is there anything from a Vis East perspective you want to share with the folks listening at home, things that folks people should be aware of, they should be looking out for, anything along those lines? Sure. Register to be an arbitrator. We're here, or the oral arguments are from the 10th to the 17th of March, 2024. Now, if you are totally big on traveling the world for international arbitration events, I would suggest you register for the VISIS, come to Hong Kong 10 to 17 March. From here, you travel on to Paris and you go to Paris Arbitration Week, which takes place from, I think it's 18, 19, 20, 21, 18 to 21 March. And then you jump on a train and go over to Vienna and do the 31st Vienna VISMUT, which is from the 21st 
until the 28th of March. Then when you're dead because you of exhaustion, it's Easter, so you just come back a few days later, you know, the resurrection. Absolutely, <laughs> and we get the holidays, so you get an extra time off. And then, you know, if you feel like you miss Hong Kong, which most people will miss Hong Kong, two months' time, you come back for ICA 2024, where I understand an amazing person in front of me, Mr. Chris Campbell, will be speaking. Look, rumors, rumors, what? Um, yes, I, I look forward to being... Uh, back in Hong Kong for that uh, event, if, you know, if you will have me at ICA. And um, I look forward to, to covering that on the podcast. That'll be the first time the Tales of the Tribunal has covered an ICA event. So we will look forward to touching with all the people on all the topics and all the things. That that, that will be a good time. It'll be good, and it'll be good locations. I mean, I enjoy the opening is at the Rosewood, which is beautiful. All of the conferences and everything will take place at the Exhibition Center, which I understand is the only place big enough to fit anyone in anyways. So it'll be great. Well, that's right. And I guess um, maybe that's a good place to, to leave. Um, tell us, uh, should folks be here at ICA 2024 and why? I mean, is that an exciting event or something? Okay, just because Chris is speaking, yes, you should be here. Again, my priority is Vis East, but I don't think it. I don't think they should rule one another out. ICA 2024, the Hong Kong government um, is fully supportive of this event. All of the organizations, all of the firms are, have basically thrown in all of their support. It'll be even better than Hong Kong Arbitration Week, which I didn't think was possible. Wow. Okay. Well, that's a, a ringing endorsement. Um, sure, Lynn, uh, the time has jumped by again as it did in the first conversation. Do you have anything else that you want to share or say to the people at home? Just, it's so great to be invited back again. Please don't wait another six years because by then I don't think I'll have any more dark hair. But thank you for being for letting me kind of expand on how great Hong Kong is, how great Withers is, and how great, of course, the Vis East and the Vis Moot are. A classic as always. Sherlyn, thank you so much for coming by the show. We'll see you next time. So, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. It was great having Sherlyn in the digital studio once again, and I hope that you can tell from all the conversations that we had while we were in Hong Kong that it was just a great time. And it was definitely an event you should look into attending in the future if you get the opportunity to do so. And before we get out of here this week, if you haven't already, don't forget to check out the cool collaboration episodes of Disputes Decoded, a limited-run podcast series by Arb Tech and Tales of the Tribunal, where we talk about technology-based topics having to do with dispute resolution. The first conversation was with PhD candidate Raman Ranama and friend of the show Colin Rule. We had a great two-part episode that you won't want to miss that talks about AI and its impact on international arbitration, all the different use cases, some threats to regulation, ethics, and all the ways in which it could affect the practice of law. So you don't want to miss that. So to catch that episode and to stay up to date on developments in the ADR tech space, head on over to ArbTech's newsfeed on LinkedIn or check out their website. So that's it for this week. We have just three more episodes left in season five for Tales of the Tribunal and perhaps one more episode of Disputes Digest before we close up shop for the year. But in any case, I hope you'll enjoy them as much as we enjoyed making them and we'll see you next week. Disputes Digest is produced by MoBeta Solutions. Show music is by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. Thank you so much for checking in. Can't wait to see you and we have more great episode and content to share with you. This has been Disputes Digest by Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared today or in any episode of Disputes Digest is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any organization or party for their inclusion on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. 
All interviewees or organizations included appear on an arm's length basis and their appearance should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.